Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the show tonight. We'll talk about the latest vaccine interruption as production is cut in Europe, meaning there will be delays with the vaccine. I don't care how big your portfolio is. If it can't get here, it means absolutely nothing. We'll talk about the Pharmacists Association. They are pushing hard to become a part of the rollout of the vaccine. And why not? They can vaccinate up to 3 million people a week. So we'll talk about the challenges that the frameworks are trying to put into their structures right now. And we'll talk about your rights of these so-called shutdown enforcement rules, because when you start to look through the rules, you realize there are not a lot of rules and there is a lot of police discretion. Let's get talking. No, sir. The government owns an apology for ruining the lives of millions of Ontarians and discounting the dozens and dozens of doctors that are begging them to take a holistic approach to the COVID situation and present a public health narrative. And so the government may try and discount me and, and discredit me. Breaking ranks with his party gets an MP booted from his party because he believes Doug Ford's cure is costlier than the disease. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, January 15th. And uh, welcome to your Friday, which for parents, some parents, it meant a PD day, depending where you live. And that meant uh, a break from managing our kids' e-learning, but then, of course, having to entertain our kids all day long while trying to get work done. And my first uh, thought was not about the chaos, uh, but why a PD day now? The kids just went back 11 days ago. Really? And, and, and parents have had to do a lot of the job. Do we get a parental day at some point? Boy, oh boy. I hope this isn't the pattern of PD days during this new norm that we're in. Nonetheless, here we are. I don't know about you. I'm very ready to get off this hamster wheel. And hopefully we'll be able to find something to do this weekend. But it's getting tough. And the guy you heard off the top there is likely someone you've never heard before. Because before 9 o'clock this morning, he was PC MPP Roman Baber. And now he's independent MPP Baber because he's been turfed from the PC party because he's gone rogue. And he went rogue by going to the media to criticize Doug Ford's lockdown measures, which he says are now deadlier than the disease. And he wasn't fired because he disagrees with Doug Ford or even because he thinks COVID is a hoax, but instead because he made his anti-lockdown views public at a time when the premier is trying to get people to buy into the lockdown measures. And uh, I've spoken to Baber several times off the record over the past few months about his concerns, so they didn't come as a surprise to me. And uh, he he does not like the lockdown measures because he says it's increased things like drug use, opiate overdose, mental health illness, harm to children, uh, and undiagnosed illnesses like cancer. But the reality is, you know, when you're in politics and you take those internal fights public, you get voted off the island, you know? You just, you would get voted off the island in any job. It's the kind of stuff you talk about behind closed doors. But Baber talked to uh, Alan Carter earlier today, and a little later in the show, I'm going to go through some of his arguments. He's not wrong on some of the things he argues about, 
And I do actually think we should be allowed to have these kinds of conversations because we have done a lot. We, not we, those in charge have done a lot of things wrong. It's just the tactics that lost him the war. And so that is why he is off the island. Speaking of islands, I'd love to be on one. I'm sure you would love to be on one. But uh, how is it? Still, 11 months in, how is it that we can't leave our homes and our kids can't go to parks or toboggan hills in Vaughan, but we can still head off to a sunny destination around the world, even though we have been warned by the federal government not to travel? I don't understand this. Makes no sense. But CBC digging into the numbers and learning that since October 1st, 1,500 flights have taken thousands of Canadians to 18 different sunny destinations. And let's be clear, there are no laws being broken. But, you know, given the situation we are in, and given we are warned every single day by the experts that we're in a make-or-break moment, why then is travel still allowed? And Trudeau was asked this several times today in his weekly press conference, you know, if we're in such danger... Um, and there are all these new threats and different strains that, that would really, really blow up our crap if it got here. Why then is there no ban? And, and of course, here was his non-answer. We continue to tell people not to travel. We are actively discouraging uh, any form of international travel. That is the best way we're going to make sure we're keeping Canadians safe, not just from the virus, but from all the new variants we're beginning to see elsewhere around the world that we need to keep Canadians safe from. Okay. Clearly people aren't listening. And we're heading into March break soon. Are we going to repeat what we saw happen last year? I mean, how do those in, in charge expect us all to take all these warnings and lockdowns seriously when a lot of the decisions being made by them completely undermine what we're told? And he wouldn't give a straight answer as to why he won't ban, um, you know, travel, even if just for a period of time. Like, sure, they banned travel to UK for, what, three whole days? Well, so what? The virus is still there ravaging Ireland and Scotland and, and, and uh, the UK. It doesn't just stop. Now we've got the South African strain, the Brazilian strain. And by the way, I guess we're allowed to call it by the country. It's not racist anymore. But, you know, doing a two or three day ban on, on one certain board, that's not going to help. But he wouldn't give a straight answer on it. He just goes on and on and on about how all these strict precautions are in place, like strict quarantine and testing that they put in, oh, gee, last week. The reality is, let's all be honest, quarantining is a joke in this country, and testing was put in like days ago. And frankly, with all these variants uh, threatening us, and the new modeling we saw today that warns we're heading for disaster, this is a policy that completely contradicts all of the things we're being told, and it sends this message that, yes, we have rules, but you just don't need to follow them. And that's why people aren't. All we ever get from our elected, we urge you, we're asking you, we're telling you, we would prefer, you know, we're going to be living with this thing for a really long time because no one in charge 
will take leadership because they don't want to waste the political capital because they know that what needs to be done is awful. It's going to hurt, but it is something that should have been done a very long time ago. And instead, what we're now into is this cyclical, you know, half-assed shutdown measures, which solve nothing and just prolong the pain. Someone should have taken leadership a long time ago and just hammered down, gotten it done, put in some very strict rules and get rid of this thing. But we didn't and they won't. And so we're stuck this, with this thing. And we're getting vaccine news today, as you've been hearing throughout the day on the news. And there's a disruption to the supply chain with Pfizer. Okay. Now we're promised by all of these experts, good old prepared Patty Haidu. Don't worry, it's just that there's a really competitive market out there. You know, I don't care. None of us care. Your job is to order the vaccines and to get them here on Canadian soil. That is the one job that the Trudeau government had to do. Upon rapid testing, border issues, their main, main job is getting us vaccines. And, you know, they got them late. And on a wing and a prayer, they managed to get a few sprinklings here and there to get them in the window, which bought them some political time. But now we're starting to see that there's the threat of delays. There's the threat of production supply issues. We are up against a whole bunch of other countries that paid a premium that we refused to pay. And now they're getting their vaccines and we're still getting peppered with a few sprinklings. So they promised, oh, yes, no, by September, we're going to get vaccinated. Well, remember, September's nine months away. It's a really long time away. And uh, you can brag about your big old portfolio all you want, but no one cares if that portfolio does not get here on Canadian shores. Pfizer has confirmed that Canada's deliveries will be impacted for the next four weeks. Will we see an average reduction over this time frame? of 50% of expected deliveries. There will be minimal impact next week. So our shipments the next week are uh, minimally impacted. The most profound impact will be in the week of January 25th. The allocations will then begin to scale back up in February. Well, how is that for a fly in the ointment? But General Fortin coming out today saying um, delivery on vaccine is going to be uh, delayed, but promising we're still going to get 4 million doses of Pfizer by March and another 2 million by Moderna which is pitiful because it means by about April, we'll still only have about 3 million Canadians vaccinated. And the problem with bragging about your big portfolio is that the portfolio only matters if it arrives. And now we're getting all these big number announcements. They sound exciting, but I think what is becoming very clear is that Canadians are not going to see a lot of real movement on vaccinations in a wide scale until at least the summer. And that's, of course, contingent on if these vaccines aren't continually delayed. And we're told the reason for today's Pfizer delay is issues with production in European, something that we wouldn't have a problem with if we could just produce them here. Amir Adharan is a professor of law and medicine, University of Ottawa, also trained epidemiologist. He joins us now. Good to have you, Professor. Hi, Alex. So, I mean, we, we had um, a couple of announcements by, by Pfizer. We had one around Christmas time where they said there was going to be a delay in production or cut to production. And now we're hearing again that there's a delay in production in Europe. And, you know, those who are coming out to speak to it are, are just saying, don't worry, this is good. It happens, but we're still on track to get all these people vaccinated. It sounds like they're trying to, pardon my, my language, polish a turd. There is a bit of that going on, yes. Um Look, let's first take it with Pfizer. They've hit snags in their production in Europe that 
clearly mean they can't ship as much vaccine to Canada as they would have liked. This isn't really surprising. We're talking about a completely new vaccine technology using mRNA, never been done before in the world. We're talking about a new manufacturing process. We're talking about perfecting and optimizing that under the greatest of pressure. Pfizer is one of the most talented pharmaceutical manufacturers in the world, and even they are having problems with this. Not unusual, but there is an element of Canada counting its chickens before they hatch, knowing that this is a very difficult, indeed unprecedented thing Pfizer is doing, and even more so Moderna, because Moderna has never manufactured any vaccine of any kind until right now. We should be spreading out our options beyond those two companies so that if there is a supply disruption like just happened, we aren't vulnerable and we don't see the vaccination timeline in this country move backwards. Right. But that would mean that, you know, Health Canada has got to move very um, quickly, which they're not used to doing and approve AstraZeneca, which is, as you well know, being used in other countries already. Um, but it still hasn't been approved by Health Canada. So if we had that third option on the table, we could turn to that. And that's exactly what I think is the right solution, Alex. Get a third option, because today it's Pfizer that's having manufacturing problems. Tomorrow it could well be Moderna, and then where are you? Mm -hmm. You don't want to bet the fate of Canada on two companies, which are for the very first time in human history, making a new vaccine with a new technology and a new manufacturing process that nobody has ever done before. That, that's just too risky. Other countries have come around to the point of view they need to begin using the AstraZeneca vaccine now, the Johnson & Johnson one, hopefully soon. Canada is not. So the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's a very good product. It's been approved in Britain in December. It's going to be almost certainly approved in the European Union this month. And Health Canada has not announced any timeline, none at all, for when they will get around to assessing and approving it. Right. And Patty Haidu was asked about this and the delays and kind of just pushed it off saying, look, it's a very competitive market. But, you know, we had a chance to pay a premium and we did not. Uh, Israel did. And we're seeing the success of, of what that is. But, you know, we get all these big announcements and I think it gets very confusing for Canadians. I mean, yesterday there was an announcement that we're getting 20 million more Pfizer um, doses. And then on Sunday on a political show, Anita Anand said we were getting 30 to 38 million uh, doses of vaccines. These all sound great. And I think it shows Canadians that we're in this and we're going to be fine. But to me, it's political and it's misleading because until we have them in this country and they're actually being put into people's arms, we don't have anything right now. Well, this is it. I mean, on Sunday, just a few days ago, Anita Anand tells Canadians that there will be 30 to 38 million doses arriving in the second quarter. That's April, May and June. And then yesterday, Major General Fortin comes out and says, no, actually, it's 20 million doses in April, May and June. Well, which is it? It's either 20 million, as he says, or it's 30 to 38 million, as she says. It, what it looks like is magically between Sunday and, and yesterday, something in the range of 10 to 18 million doses just disappeared. 
and the government hasn't explained why. Is it because actually there are supply shortages they're not telling us about? Is it because actually Anita Anand uh, was making it up? Either way, it's not good, but we deserve the truth on this. Yeah, but there is politics at play because, you know, the the Liberals can't seem to be failing on this because they'll lose a lot of political capital. But we're also starting to hear conversations about cutting doses. And so I think Quebec is looking at stretching out doses between first and second shot by up to 60 to 90 days. That is not that's not what is on the instruction bottle uh, that Pfizer or even Moderna sends out. They say 21 days. So what is the concern there if we're now you know, um, A, we have to hold back a second dose, okay, but now we have some provinces saying, now let's just get it into people's arms uh, as fast as, as possible, but we can't guarantee that second dose will go in when the manufacturer tells us it has to. And that to me is extremely worrisome about Quebec's approach. They really do the second dose for 90 days or something like that. We have mm-hmm. no scientific evidence that that works. None. I don't mean a little. None. You could end up with a situation where the person after the second shot doesn't really rev up their immune system to a high degree of protection. We could also end up in a situation that in those 90 days with partial protection, it assists the virus to evolve more dangerous mutations. This is not something that Quebec should be playing with. And Frankly, if I were in charge, I would be telling Quebec, you will either align with the national plan on this or the government simply will give you no vaccine. Now make a choice. Well, maybe you should step in, but nonetheless, um, until that happens. But, you know, speaking of those strains, we are seeing new strains, the UK strain, the South African strain, and now this new deadly Brazilian strain. Um, And the prime minister has been asked, and I still do not understand why this hasn't happened, about travel. I don't understand if we're all being told to lock in our houses and I can't go to my friends or I can't visit my mother, but we're still allowing plane full of people into this country on a daily basis. And the federal government will not institute a travel ban and is simply not telling Canadians you can't travel. I think recommending what people do is not good enough this far in. Either we shut the travel down like Australia did or we're just, I think, fooling ourselves and allowing other variants into this country, like we did the first time with COVID when we were warned back in January. It is a risk. And, you know, travel really should be held to the minimum necessary. Uh, if people have to leave the country, I'm one of them, but I left mm-hmm. months ago and I'm not pushing to get myself back because I don't want to be the cause of making someone in Canada sick. Let Mm -hmm. people settle in for the duration of this pandemic, one place or another. And when they come back to Canada, and this applies to me, I I would be perfectly happy to be held in a supervised quarantine with my family to make sure that I don't present a risk. I would be perfectly happy to have to take a test while in quarantine to prove that, that I am negative and that my family's negative. That is a sort of restriction that other countries have applied, not just Australia, but Taiwan, South Mm -hmm. Korea, and others. And it makes sense to me. And I say this even though it may come back and bite me personally. So I would very much like to see our government tighten that up. Well, they might want to before March break, because we saw what happened last March break. And uh, maybe they can just be proactive instead of reactive. 
But, uh, Professor, always uh, appreciate your insight into all of this, and uh, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Alex. All righty, so once we actually get supply of the vaccine, the challenge is, of course, getting it into people's arms. And right now, the plan at play is to have the military lead the charge, setting up some, you know, vaccine clinics and making sure the product gets to where it needs to go. But so far, as you know, we've only vaccinated 1% of the population. And if we're really serious about ramping up the speed of delivery, and especially when it comes in late spring, without question, without question, we need other sources to go to. And Canada's got 11,000 pharmacies. And of course, they should be a big part of the delivery plan because they can deliver up to 3 million doses weekly. And we have been using pharmacies for an awfully long time to administer the flu shot. Justin Bates is CEO of Pharmacists Association. He joins us now. Good to have you. My pleasure. Where are the conversations or are there any conversations at all between the province of Ontario and pharmacies as far as getting you know involved in this? We've been collaborating uh, and having discussions with the ministry and various other officials within government, including the provincial COVID vaccine task force for several months now to leverage the accessibility and convenience of pharmacies in Ontario. We have over 4,600 uh, healthcare hubs, pharmacies, uh, that give us a, a massive footprint. And, and we know this is going to be a group effort. We need everybody uh, uh, maximizing the capabilities and capacity, including primary care physicians, public health units. But at pharmacy, you know, we have been increasing uh, in terms of demand, patients coming in for flu shots, um, and we expect that only to continue for the COVID vaccine. And we saw just uh, using the flu um, shot as an example of just the crush of demand and how, you know, difficult it is to navigate. Uh, the vaccine is even bigger because even more people are going to want the vaccine and to get it as fast as possible. And you have to have a real system in place, especially with these two shot uh, doses, because you have to have 21 days set apart. But but the flu shot this time around uh, proved that the pharmacies very much can do it. When would the pharmacies then be brought in? Is it one of these things where in a few months you guys would come in or are they actively trying to get a plan in place now? The plan is in progress. In fact, uh, pharmacies have been announced to be taking part in the vaccination program in phase two. So we're in phase one right now where the priority populations in long-term care facilities, both staff, personnel and, and residents are being vaccinated with what supply we have today as well as hospitals and essential health care workers in those institutions. Phase okay, two so let me stop you there, because I, I didn't know pharmacies were involved in stage one. And so what pharmacies and how are they doing it, given the sensitivity of the um, uh, of the material you guys are working with? Yeah, it's a great question. So pharmacists are involved in those settings under medical directives and uh, have uh, received priority access due to the um, exposure risk to COVID to receive the vaccine. So in the 20 plus clinics that are running out of hospitals, some have hospital pharmacists involved. In terms of the community rollout, that won't happen until phase two. And that's likely to be March, uh, April timeframe where there'll be further prioritization of the population looking at age bands, essential workers, including healthcare providers, those that are working in grocery and in our food supply chain, as well as uh, marginalized um, and vulnerable populations. And in phase three, uh, which we would also be involved in, would be a much broader rollout to the community mm-hmm. uh, where the general population would have access. Now, all of this is dependent, yeah. of course, on availability of supply. We heard today that uh, the Pfizer vaccine is having some production issues. So those timelines certainly could be pushed out 
uh, if we don't have enough of the uh, doses. And I would think um, so. So the the pharmacists you you cite, um, you know, in the hospital settings, they can do it because they've got the proper refrigeration and obviously um, the the sensitive material. They're able to to keep it there and have people come in. But certainly when we get into the bigger rollouts with other vaccines, whether it's AstraZeneca, I think um, Moderna doesn't need um, the same kind of handling as Pfizer. Then you can get more of it into the pharmacies. But are pharmacies at this point now having to, um, you know, put in an infrastructure to get, you know, prepared for these vaccines? Yes, I think there's two things that are happening. We're building on the infrastructure we already have in place to manage both the demand and the supply. Uh, we witnessed that through the, the flu season, which had a 500% increase in demand this year from uh, the same point last year. So uh, we know we can do more. And, and you referenced uh, 3 million per week across the, the country is our capacity. Um, and, and that'll depend on supply availability. In terms of the, the parameters and requirements of the vaccine itself, there will be more of the Pfizer vaccine available, certainly into the summer, uh, based on the orders that have been placed by the federal government. And that means some complications and, and certainly complexity. The Pfizer vaccine can be stored at uh, two to eight degrees, which is a fridge, and all pharmacies have these fridges uh, for up to five days upon delivery. So that gives you a limited window to book appointments and to manage that shelf life of five days. If you have a freezer up to minus 20 degrees, it will store for 30 days and up to minus 70 degrees would allow it for up to six months. So there's about 15% of the pharmacies uh, in Ontario have these deep freezers. The rest will either purchase them, uh, government can supply them, or we would be able to do just-in-time delivery through pharmacy wholesalers uh, and be able to go through that supply on a five-day cycle. And so what is the big, um, the biggest challenge then? Because it was, I mean, there were challenges with the flu shot. Not there, there wouldn't be in any other year, I don't think, but because it was COVID and everyone was told to go out there, it could be really difficult to actually get one. It, I ended up getting one, but it did take a, a couple of months of waiting. The vaccine's a whole different beast. Um, and does that mean bulking up staff? Will you bring in specific uh, extra kind of frontline workers in the pharmacy? Because at the same time, the pharmacies also have to uh, fill prescriptions and do their daily business. Business. It's a great question and uh, how we're going to manage this from a resource standpoint. And one of the, uh, I think, good things that happened this week is that the government put in an exemption to the Regulated Health Professions Act that will enable pharmacists and pharmacy technicians and pharmacy interns, students who have just graduated, mm -hmm. to be able to administer the vaccine. So that'll add uh, labor resources. Um, and certainly we're ramping up to be able to manage this. And I think the province is contemplating a central system for a vaccine registry. Uh, and that's where we will input data of who got the vaccine and when, but it also will have a scheduler to it. So it'll be a centralized system where patients could go in and healthcare providers to book appointments. And that'll avoid the chaos of people lining up um, mm -hmm. and also keep people safe. Um, but you're right, this is unprecedented. Uh, we saw roughly about 5 million Ontarians get vaccinated for the flu shot this year alone. And I think it's going to be interesting. Is that an anomaly because of the uh, we're in a pandemic and people are more aware of the value and importance of getting a flu shot? But in this case, we know the demand will likely be anywhere from 10 to 12 million Ontarians, which is why we're going to need all pharmacies ramping up. Uh, but we have expertise in this area and building on the success of the flu program which really the only rate limiting step this year was supply. We could have done more than the yeah. 1.6 million that we did through pharmacies, but there just wasn't enough supply. So supply is the critical piece here. We're ready to turn uh, on this on over overnight uh, and can start ramping up.
Yeah. And uh, just quickly, Justin, before I let you go, when do you expect uh, that um, we'll see people going into pharmacies quite regularly um, getting vaccinated? Will that be April or would it be sooner? Yeah. So one of the things we're expecting is to have pharmacists and other community health care providers vaccinated themselves in the March to April timeframe. And then you're going to see an onboarding process, probably uh, slowly ramping up as supply becomes available in the hotspot regions. And then eventually into uh, late spring, the summer, uh, I would expect the majority of pharmacies would be offering the vaccine to the population. Fair to say that this is the uh, most challenging um, thing that pharmacies have been, uh, I guess, faced? I think that's fair to say across the healthcare system, uh, logistic challenges and complexity, the high demand, uh, the fact yeah. that we have two doses that we have to deliver and various requirements of the vaccine is going to make this uh, uh, the magnitude we've never seen before, but we're certainly ready mm-hmm. to step up. Step up, you will, and I thank you for stepping up tonight and explaining it all to us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Justin Bates uh, is the CEO of the Pharmacists Association. And look, frankly, this is a no-brainer. Um, pharma- pharmacists, and I go to them all the time. You can ask them questions. Uh, you know, you don't always have to go to the doctor. They actually can. And I think after the pandemic, we're going to see pharmacists are uh, and should be doing a lot more um, with the small diagnoses and things like that uh, than we are using them for. It just eases up uh, burdens on the healthcare care system. So. All righty, so how is a stay-at-home order actually on order at all if a lot of it can't be enforced? We're now into day two of the latest shutdown, but when you actually start to read through what kind of authority the police will have to keep us locked down, you start to realize that there are a whole lot of loopholes that severely limit the powers cops have. And then on the flip side, it's like, well, use your discretion. Here's what I know now. You can't actually be stopped randomly to see if you're complying. They certainly can't come into your home if Tilly Tattletale calls to complain. And when you start to go through what can actually be enforced, it's not much. Ryan O'Connor is a Toronto-based civil litigation partner with Zayuna Law Firm. Did I say that right? Uh, you did, yes. I got the pronunciation right. Good to have you, Ryan. Uh, good to be here, Alex. So, you know, I'm looking through this and I'm reading it and it looks like there's a whole bunch of rules, but then the whole lot of fine print and butts. Well, what I've been calling it is a a 24-7 curfew with 29 caveats. And you're right, there are 29 butts, Uh, you know, butts from, uh, uh, you know, animal care. So taking your your dog, your cat to the veterinary clinic, it's totally reasonable. There's uh, there's an exception. quite appropriately for persons uh, who are homeless. There's an exception for persons who have to go to work to a business that's still open. So that could be a manufacturing company. It could be uh, an office where you can only do work within that office as opposed uh, to at home to, to get uh, uh, to get medication or to go get groceries or food. So there are 29 exceptions. They're very broad. And it seems to me that the only real um, you know target of the stay-at-home order is if you're in a car and not actually going anywhere so you're on a sunday drive with no destination that seems to be really the only thing that's proscribed by this by these series of exceptions and as i understood even if they pull you over you don't have to tell them where you're going you could just be saying i'm going for a drive sure the the uh, the ministry of the uh, or pardon me the solicitor general's office has given guidance to uh, uh chiefs of police and police forces that they're not to pull someone over um strictly to determine if that person is potentially violating the stay-at-home order but that doesn't prevent police from pulling you over for any myriad other reasons, broken taillight, potentially you're, you're exceeding the speed limit, et cetera. 
So certainly they could still pull you over for all of those other circumstances. And then who knows what the police will do with respect to asking you why you're out on the road in the first place. Right. But when it starts to get into the silliness and where people you know, start to get into trouble is, um, you know, where towards the end of it, there's fine print that basically says, and I think most units will do this, is use your best discretion. And I think that's where we get into trouble. And there was a story um, yesterday where an Ontario mother's been charged for dropping her kids off at their grandparents' house so that she could go grocery shopping and do the work that she needs to get done. And then Tilly Tallytale, uh, you know, called the police. The police show up, and before you know it, grandma and mom are ticketed for basically doing what they're allowed to do, which is, uh, you know, they've got bubbled houses, so they're dropping the kids off. But that's what discretion led to. Well, and that was before the stay-at-home order. But the problem is, yeah, is that yeah. confusing, gu- the confusing guidance from public health officials throughout the province as to whether or not you should even be mixing with other households. Like you just mentioned, Alex, you know, those two households were bubbling. Mother had to go grocery shopping. And remember, the kids are in virtual learning right now, so they need to be supervised mm-hmm. by a guardian or adult. The grandparents were helping in that circumstance with, with virtual learning while, while the mom ran necessary errands. But but now under the lockdown regulations, this is even before the new lockdown regulation, even before the stay-at-home order was imposed on Wednesday, you can't you can't bubble with other households anymore, even though that was permissible months ago, uh, because that would constitute an illegal gathering. And so the police in Norfolk County, when they had the opportunity to potentially exercise discretion, they elected not to do so. And that's the problem with the um, you know with the guidance from from the government. Yes, they're telling chiefs of police, well, you know, you know. You shouldn't be pulling over persons just to determine if they're breached or to use your discretion. But you cannot expect that when there's a new law that police are just learning about on Wednesday, that they're going to be able to ensure that that discretion is applied properly with, uh, uh, you know, with the guidance that has been set up by the government and in compliance with the Charter of Rights. Right. And then there's the issue of judgment. And some have good judgment and some clearly don't have good judgment. But, you know, we just learned that the city of Vaughan is announcing that outdoor skating rinks, toboggan hills and dog parks now will be closed effective immediately. Now, parents are going to be, and not to mention dog owners, but parents now, what, a week and a half into e-learning and and now today's a PE day, desperate to get kids outdoors, which we have to because exercise is essential Fresh air is essential, and what else are we supposed to do but go outside? But here's a prime example where parents are going to want to go to the park, which should be reasonable and won't be able to because that's now going to be uh, flooded probably with bylaw officers looking to ticket tobogganers and um, and park goers. What's interesting about the Vaughn example that you just described is that tobogganing is specifically permitted under the, lo- the, the lockdown regulation that's been in effect province-wide since uh, December 26th. So you can use the toboggan hill, provided you're abiding by all the other public health rules, such as you know social distancing, et cetera, and any municipal bylaws that might specifically apply. But now that the toboggan hill and Vaughan, uh, they just described as closed, it's legal for the parents and the kids under the stay-at-home order to be uh, walking down the sidewalk. In fact, walking is a specific exception because it constitutes exercise under the stay-at-home order. But if they were going to go to use the to- toboggan hill that's now closed, that's an outdoor recreational activity that is no longer permitted. And therefore, you're not, it would be prohibited for that family to walk to the closed toboggan hill, maybe use it, um, you know, uh, under the radar, because that's an outdoor recreational amenity that's closed. So while it would be legal if they didn't intend to go to that toboggan hill and were walking around with sleds, but not actually going there, that's permissible. But if they intended to go there, then they, that family may be in breach of the stay at home order. And, and I just, it, you know, it, 
it demonstrates just how uh, absurd some of these exceptions uh, can be when they're actually applied in real life. Well, well, especially when, you know, we still allow for people to try, you know, fly in and out of, of the, you know, the country where they can go off to the Bahamas or go wherever they want. They can come back in, but you, you can't go across the street to take your dog for a, a, a whiz at the dog park. That, that to me is where, you know, it undermines what we're supposed to be doing right now. The rules are all over the place. What we should have rules for, we don't. And what we do have rules for, um, you know, like it, it, it's all upside down and backwards. And I think that's why people are not just confused but are just throwing their hands up and just saying, to hell with it. I'll just, I've got to do what I've got to do to survive. Well, and, and it looks like the stay-at-home order, it's, it's to send a message to the public of the importance of, of staying home, but it's not really addressing the, those um, areas where there might be viral spread. If you're just right. in your car and you want to just go for a drive with no destination, that's prohibited under the stay-at-home order. If you're in the car alone, you have absolutely no means by which you can engage in viral spread. You are not a risk to the public if, God forbid, you have COVID. And you're not going to contract it because you're not seeing anyone. That's prohibited. But there are large manufacturing facilities, and I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not suggesting at all that we should be restricting them. There should be public health guidelines implemented, but the economy needs to continue and, and individuals mm-hmm. have jobs to go to providing necessary goods and services. But uh, there have been outbreaks in large industrial um, settings. And, uh, and those places are still open. It's much more likely to have an outbreak where you have to interact with others. So, I, I, and, you know, there are travel-related cases, for example, and travel's not banned. And, in fact, there's an exception under the stay-at-home order that you can travel to the airport and go to a, you know, a high-case count jurisdiction and then come back and quarantine. So, it's it, it seems targeting the person who's alone in the car just wanting to get out of the house, it's cold, maybe they don't want to walk. Um, that person's being targeted when there are other instances in the community where viral, viral spread might be much more common and those are still permitted. So it just becomes absurd. Yeah. I, you know, at some point you, you lose public buy-in for public health measures when they don't make sense. Right. And I, and I know that you've been very vocal about this, even offering up your services free for those who get caught. Uh, yeah, I've, I've indicated online that, you know, small businesses that, that uh, need assistance with understanding uh, very complicated lockdown rules that can contact me. And, and certainly I'm open to hearing from persons who uh, might have been uh, caught up in this 24-7 curfew with a caveat uh, to uh, to contact me and see if uh, myself or my law firm can, uh, can provide assistance to you depending on the circumstances. But I'm happy to do that because I know it's confusing and it's upsetting for members of the community. And I would suspect a lot of these will not stand up in a court um, just because there are so many loopholes and so many charter issues with a lot of these orders that uh, boy oh boy you think about how much of this is going to get caught up in the courts and bog it down needlessly well and our courts are already uh, our courts are already clogged right now with uh, with case delays from trials and hearings that were uh, were suspended because of the first wave so who knows when these tickets are actually going to be going to be tried in court and as you say there you talk about the charter issues Alex you're, you're quite right there's there's four sections of the charter that are potentially uh, breached with a stay-at-home order or a more broad curfew. And who knows if the stay-at-home order doesn't, um, you know, doesn't work well in terms of addressing case counts. It probably won't. Then uh, who knows what the public health uh, table, the science table, is going to recommend next? Are we looking at a curfew where that, uh, you know, your ability to go out at certain times is completely prohibited? There are serious char- charter issues associated with that. Stay tuned. We're only on day two. Ryan, thank you for joining us and uh, clearing up the unclearable. <laughs> it's uh, good to be with you, Alex. Thank you for having me. Ryan O'Connor, and the um, if you knew, need some advice and you get shit caught, it is Zayuna Law Firm, and his name is Ryan O'Connor. He'll do it uh, free of charge. Of course, you can listen to us live Monday through Friday, starting 6 
30 sharp here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.